Coming up next on Tech News Weekly, I'm Jason Howell. I talk with Eric Geller from The Messenger. We talk all about President Biden's artificial intelligence executive order, what's in there, and specifically, how does it relate to security uh, with AI? And I am Micah Sargent. I talk to Reed Albergati of Semaphore about Microsoft's breakthrough research into smaller large language models. I read a pretty interesting article by Taylor Lorenz. Usually when she writes something, it's pretty interesting. Focuses on where younger adults are getting their news, and it's not the traditional outlets that you're probably used to hearing. And an unfortunate story reveals that the law needs to catch up with AI after students in a New Jersey high school discovered photos that were faked of them uh, had been shared with the classmates. These were nude photos, unfortunately. So we learn about where the law is and kind of where it needs to go next. All that coming up on Tech News Weekly. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Tech News Weekly, episode 310, recorded Thursday, November 2nd, 2023. Understanding Biden's AI executive order. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Stop letting strangers invade your online privacy. Protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash TNW for three extra months free with a one-year package. And by our friends, IT Pro TV, now ACI Learning. IT skills are outdated in about 18 months. Launch or advance your career today with quality, affordable, entertaining training. Individuals use code TWIT30 for 30% off a standard or premium individual IT Pro membership at go.acilearning.com slash TWIT. And by Bitwarden. Get the open source password manager that can help you stay safe online. Get started with a free Teams or Enterprise plan trial or get started for free across all devices as an individual user at bitwarden.com slash twit. Hello and welcome to Tech News Weekly, the show where every week we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. I am one of your hosts, Micah Sargent. And I'm the other guy, Jason Howell, here to talk a little AI. Actually, today's show has a good amount of AI. It does, as it often does these days, because know, the world of, has a good it, amount of AI, That's right? true. Soon yeah. this planet is going to be completely, like the core of, of planet Earth will be filled with AI. That's <laughs> basically where we're headed. Um you may have asked for AI regulation. Maybe you didn't, but if you did, you got it at least sort of about as close to AI regulation here in the U.S. as we've gotten so far. President Biden issued a uh, pretty big executive order on artificial intelligence. It aims to address many of the risks. Well, hopefully, I think still, you know, encouraging some sort of innovation uh, in the space here in the U.S. And uh, there was a big focus also on security. So we've got Eric Geller, who wrote about the 111 page executive order for The Messenger here to talk all about it. Welcome, Eric. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, before we talk about security, let's uh, maybe just, you know, get some sort of the you know st- uh, standing on the basics here. White House says this is, quote, the most sweeping actions ever taken to protect Americans from the potential risks of AI systems. Um, what are some of these risks that they're calling out here that they're really focusing on? 111 pages is a lot of, of ground to cover. But what's your thoughts there? It's a wide range of risks. So we're talking about things like um, hackers potentially using AI to improve their cyber attacks, which is something that I focused on. 
But we're also talking about things like protecting the privacy of folks' data when it's getting used to train these algorithms. Uh, and we're talking about things like algorithmic bias, so making sure that if you're using AI to recommend medical treatments, that you're training that AI on a wide set of patient experiences so that it's not recommending something that is not going to work for you depending on your ethnicity or, or something like that. So AI is just now emerging as an issue that, yes, it has a lot of potential, but it could also sow a lot of chaos in a lot of different areas. And one of the things that the executive order tries to do is hit each of those in a different section um, and talk about how the administration wants wants different agencies to work on uh, not necessarily solving those problems. I don't think the AIEO contemplates uh, solving all of these problems. What it does address is let's get our hands around the scope of the problem. And from there, we can work with the companies to figure out specific solutions. Yeah, and this really isn't the first step that we've seen the White House um, kind of focus its attention on AI uh, in. It was just a year ago that they laid out its uh, AI Bill of Rights. I don't know really what came of that. I'm sure that you know probably directly informed what we're seeing here. And like I said, 111 pages. It's no small you know little you know couple of page memo that that has been written up here. What does the size of this tell? Tell us about how the U.S. government is seeing AI. And I mean, I mean, maybe that's even more evolved than it was even a year ago. But what does that tell us? So it tells me that they understand, the folks in the White House understand that this is a problem that is going to crop up on many different fronts. You can't just look at this in the cybersecurity context, although that's kind of what I focused on in my story. Mm-hmm. You also have to look at it in terms of bias. You have to look at it in terms of privacy. Um, there are different sort of permutations of the the AI threat. Um, and the EO, again, is, is trying to say, look, we understand that these problems are going to crop up in multiple different areas. We're trying to kickstart work on each of those areas, but this is just the beginning. All right. So you've uh, you've mentioned that you focused largely on the security aspect, which is a piece of this, and we can talk about you know other pieces here in a second. But let's focus on security to kind of start off with. It plays a very big part of kind of the directive of what we're seeing here. How exactly does this executive order address? the use of AI for things like hacks, for exploitation, does it have any sort of consequence tied into it? Or like you said earlier, is it just really about raising awareness uh, in, in regards to security? So it kicks off a, a pretty ambitious project to get all the different parts of the government that that sort of watch over uh, what they call critical infrastructure. So that's our hospitals, that's our power grid, that's our water facilities, um, and integrate AI security guidance into how they talk to these different companies and say, here's what you need to be doing, here's how we're going to assess what you're doing. Right now, AI is not a big part of that. This executive order is kicking off a process of integrating AI into that kind of oversight and eventually regulation. We're not there yet, but it will eventually lead to, um, at, at different agencies, uh, regulation on, hey, how are you using AI? And also, how are you protecting yourself from AI? So that's one big thing. The other big thing is, when companies test uh, large language models, when they train them, they are going to have to provide reports to the government about the results of their security tests. So all most of the major companies have actually voluntarily pledged to the White House, we will test our large language models 
to see how hackers could exploit them. We will pretend to be hackers. It's called red teaming. And we will try to find problems. And if we find them, we'll fix them. This executive order says, if you do this in the United States of America, you must tell us the results of those tests. Um, and it also, interestingly, requires reporting by the, the cloud service companies. So think Amazon, think Google. Whenever somebody's buying space on one of these cloud platforms to test these, these AI systems, which you need to do because they are so computing intensive, if you're buying space to do that, Amazon or Google or whoever has to tell the government, hey, we had a customer sign up um, because they want to do some AI testing. So that's a way for the government to try to get a sense of how many different people out there are trying to do this. So that Because the first thing, if you want to regulate, you have to understand the space. So these are efforts to try to get, again, get their arms around the scope of, of the activity and then get their arms around the scope of the problem. From what you just said, it, it makes me think like the the pessimistic view of this is that an AI company can let me let me try and resynthesize. You you mentioned if they do these red teaming tests, then they have to share that with the government. Um, is there any any possibility that they just don't do the red teaming test because they don't want to share this kind of information? They'd really probably be shooting themselves in the foot by doing that as well. But is that a possibility here? Or are they saying you must test these things in these ways? And when you do, you have to share that information with us. It's a really interesting combination of voluntary and mandatory. So the major companies have already promised voluntarily that they will do these tests. And the executive mm -hmm. order says you have to share the tests with us. So the Biden administration, the White House is getting around having to say we are going to make you do these tests, um, but only because they've already gotten promises from the major players to do the tests anyway. Now, that doesn't account for the entire that doesn't sort of cover the waterfront of anybody who could do AI research. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, because you need so much computing power, the major players represent the vast majority of activity in this space. And at various White House meetings over the past few months, they have committed already to doing those tests. Is there any limit to or, or not not limit, but is there any kind of um, horizon or threshold? There's the word that I'm looking for. Threshold that a company like this has to pass before it's required to do this? In other words, the lower scale uh, entrance in this space versus the really mega ones with, you know, the vast, you know, warehouses full of servers that are driving all of this compute power. Are they less likely to fall into these requirements versus like the really big players? Yes, there are uh, provisions in the executive order that sort of define how big does your activity have to be? before you have to report. So it's going to encompass most of what we think about when we think about AI. So training the next version of ChatGPT, that's definitely going to be uh, big enough in terms of the resources that are devoted to it, that their open AI is going to have to report. Uh, and they have, as I said, they were one of the companies that promised to do this voluntarily. So they are going to have to share the results of what they're doing with the White House. So it does encompass pretty much everybody who's doing what we think of as large-scale AI, um, but there is a threshold that you have to clear in order to be covered by this. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. I think companies at that scale, you know, they, they've been they've been saying for a while, like, yes, come on, regulate us, right? Like, we, we invite regulation, but then there's all, also, you know, the perspective or the opinion that they're doing that because they can benefit from the regulatory capture. They're already really big. Do you think they're, I mean, I, I guess this is, you know, what do you think versus what do you know? But are we are we getting any reaction from them about these these rules? And do we have any sense of how they actually feel like? Is this uh, not the kind of regulation they were looking for, if we had to guess? 
I think these companies, particularly the, the major ones that have already made these promises to do this red teaming, they recognize that it, it's better for their business model yeah. to uh, be seen as cooperating with the White House, to be seen as putting their best foot forward. They don't want to get the reputation as the bad guy in the AI ecosystem that is off in the corner doing something secret and who knows how it could be exploited because that doesn't look good for them as a company that's trying to say, we're out here trying to make society better. And I think the White House has capitalized on that. They understand that these companies – it's not just the technology. It's also the story that they sell. And the White House is saying, hey, if you're selling the story of using AI to make the world a better place, why don't you do these basic common sense things to reduce bias, to reduce security risks? Um, and along the way, we will sort of bring you closer to us and get you more on board for the kinds of regulations that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. OK, that's good. That's positive. Um, what about privacy? Because this I mean, and, and by the way, this executive order touches on a whole lot of other angles and aspects of AI than, than we're going to talk about today. But I think privacy kind of, you know, often uh, is hand in hand with security. What does this address about the privacy of people who interact with AI, about their data, the data sets, that sort of stuff? So one of the things I think is really interesting in here is um the executive order requires every agency to think about how is it buying uh, Americans' personal data from commercial companies, uh, data brokers. So that could be things like the location of your phone based on where it's pinging cell towers. This is something that law enforcement agencies have been doing for years to try to get around warrant requirements for uh, for government searches. They just buy your data and they can see where you've gone. Now, when you think about AI and how it can process that data in ways that we've never seen before, that opens up a lot of potential for uh, violating people's privacy because, again, this information was not collected pursuant to the Fourth Amendment. So the executive order says, rethink your purchase of this data. Rethink the privacy safeguards that you are putting around this data. Um, again, this is the kind of thing that is who knows how it's going to be enforced, who knows how it's going to be implemented. But that's, that's a step by the White House to say, we understand that AI takes things that aren't huge problems already and makes them even bigger, or it takes things that are huge problems and brings them to a scale we've never thought of before. So that's where you see the privacy and AI kind of interact. We've got this data Right now, we can't make great use of it, or I should say previously to AI, we couldn't make great use of it. We're already starting to see agencies use AI to understand it better. And I should say there is a flip side to that, particularly when it comes to cybersecurity. The government is using AI to try to understand cyber threats in a way that humans simply couldn't put those pieces mm -hmm. together. So there are benefits as well to that power of AI. Yeah, no question. Um, no question at all. I totally agree. Uh, Eric Geller writes for The Messenger, wrote up a really great piece that we're, of course, obviously talking about right now that you should all go over there and read and understand a little bit more about this executive order. It'll be really interesting to kind of see how this develops, what kind of actual impact this has in the coming months on the companies that we talk about so much uh, in regards to artificial intelligence. So, Eric, thank you so much for taking time today with us. Um, if people want to follow you online, where can they find you? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter or X, I guess I should call it. I'm Eric Geller, uh, and you can find me at uh, ericjgeller.com as well. Right on. Thank you again, Eric. It's a pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. All right. Bye. All right. Thanks so much, Eric. Up next, Microsoft is making breakthroughs in oxymorons, small LLMs. That's small, large language models. <laughs> uh, but first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by ExpressVPN. 
Now, did you ever read the fine print that appears when you start browsing in incognito mode? It says that your activity might still be visible to your employer, to your school, or your internet service provider. So how can it even be called incognito? If you want to really stop people from seeing the sites you visit, you need to do what I do and use ExpressVPN. Think about all the times you've used Wi-Fi at a coffee shop or a hotel or maybe even at your parents' house. Without ExpressVPN, every site you visit could be logged by the admin of that network, and that's still true even when you're in incognito mode. I mean, do you really want your parents to see what you've been looking at? Oh. That's that's a question you have to answer. What's more, your home internet provider can also see and record your browsing data. And in the U.S., they're legally allowed to sell that data to advertisers. ExpressVPN is an app that encrypts all of your network data and reroutes it through a network of secure servers so that your private online activity stays just that, private. ExpressVPN works on all of your devices, and it's very easy to use. The app literally has one button. You tap it to connect, and your browsing activity is secure from prying eyes. I have been using ExpressVPN for years now, and it is the only VPN that I recommend to other people, not because they're a sponsor on the show, but because it's genuinely the VPN you should be using. It is a trusted VPN. It is constantly checked to make sure that it remains a trusted VPN. They've got a lot of information about how they do not log your data and have proven time and time again that they do not log your data. And that's something that I just can't say for other VPNs out there. Plus, that one big button I press to make it all work is quite handy and quite nice. And I often forget I've got it turned on on my devices because of how quick the connections are, regardless of where I happen to be. So, Stop letting strangers invade your online privacy. Protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash TNW. You can use our link at expressvpn.com slash TNW to get three extra months free with a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash TNW to learn more. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's episode of Tech News Weekly. All right, we are back from the break, and let's talk about oxymorons. No, really, we're talking about Microsoft's research uh, into AI, and in particular, in small AI models, because I think that's going to be the future. Joining us to talk about this uh, breakthrough is Reed Albergati from Semaphore. Welcome back to the show, Reed. Thanks for thanks for having me. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. So let's uh, kick things off by uh, telling us a bit about Microsoft's recent breakthrough with their small AI model. Uh, I believe it's at Phi or Fee 1.5 and how it compares to OpenAI's GPT-4 in terms of its capabilities. Yeah, I mean, I think they call it Phi um, based on the conversations I had with the researchers um, who shared some pretty interesting exclusive information on this breakthrough, which is that Phi 1.5 is now multimodal, which means it can look at images and tell you sort of what's happening in an image. That's a capability that pretty recently was added to GPT-4, albeit on a a, a much larger scale. And what these people at Microsoft Research and, and other companies have been doing is looking at these gigantic models, these foundation models like GPT-4, and essentially trying to understand how they learned what they learned and then doing that on a much smaller scale, but in a much more targeted way so they can get some of the same, what they call reasoning capabilities in a much more efficient package in a, in a way that sort of um, these models can be run on, on laptops if you want to. 
Um, whereas GPT-4, you know, has to be run on these gigantic servers with uh, graphics processing mm-hmm. units. And, and as you, your, your, your listeners probably know, um, there's this huge shortage of those. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're running up against some infrastructure problems. Absolutely. And so when we talk about, so GPT-4 and ChatGPT just recently went multimodal and as has provided that capability of using sort of different um, different modes of, of, uh, of AI. So tell us about what it means for this sort of smaller AI model to have gone multimodal. And is, is it significant that it's uh, been able to do that? I think it's really significant. I mean, the researchers actually seemed somewhat surprised that they were, that they were able to do this and with so little data, um, you sort of think about images, you think about, you know, terabytes of data, millions of images to get these models to learn. And I think they did it with 30,000 images, they said. Wow. Um, they were able to to do this. And it just added almost, it was like a negligible, I mean, a couple of million parameters, which, you know, when you're talking about GPT-4, that's a scale of, of they have about 1.7 trillion parameters. Um, so it's really like no difference. Um, and and what's so fascinating, why why they're really shocked by this is that, there is such a huge size difference that if you, if you put it into like distance in terms of distance, then, you know, GPT four would be like the empire state building and five 1.5 would be like a sub sandwich. <laughs> um, it's just, you know, like a foot long. I mean, it's, it's a huge difference. Um, so I think what they're, what's so, sort of interesting about it also is that they've, what they're learning about how large language models learn in this process, mm-hmm. they're really making some breakthroughs. Now, so so I, I loved that um, comparison that you drew there. That was really helpful for me to kind of understand uh, the the size difference in, in terms of the parameter count. And so, with that in mind, you know what what is the why is it better maybe that the that that it's it's using uh, fewer parameters and kind of how does that impact companies who are making the choice between something like GPT-4 and then this Phi 1.5 the Empire State Building versus the foot long why would a company want to choose one or the other Yeah it's interesting I mean you when you and I mess around with uh, with G, with ChatGPT we're asking these really broad questions about all sorts of things but when you when you look at what companies are trying to do with 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 these things is they're really trying to focus those models down on the data that they have at their company right so they want to run all these corporate documents through a model and then the model will sort of and then prompt it and say you know okay what's my sales forecast for next year you know i'm just making that up but um that is incredibly expensive i talked to data iq um, about this, which is a AI company that sort of sits in the middle of the, these interfaces between the GPT-4 kind of APIs and these corporate, um, you know, IT departments, and they can kind of see what's happening. And they said it's it's you know you can spend on GPT-4 up to five dollars for a single query just because of all the data that's going back and forth. Now it's that's not happening on a daily basis, but on average, it's something about ten cents a query, which really adds up when you're looking at like a, a gigantic company. Um, so there's a lot of cost associated with just using these models. So if you can basically take the reasoning engine, the part of the model that you really need um, to look at your corporate data and make that really small and efficient, 
maybe even run it locally on your own computers, um, you could just save a ton of money um, and also you know, have it be sort of faster and, and maybe even more secure. So there's a lot of just practical benefits um, for, for the enterprise in shrinking this stuff down. And shrinking down is probably the wrong term because that's not really what they're doing, but, but sort of you know, creating small models with the same um, capabilities. Understood. Now, um, one of the, the things that's kind of, uh, I think, at the heart of this is that you know, the researchers are, are clearly looking at a way to kind of uh, switch from this, this huge system to this smaller system. And you know, we see the kind of business implications of that. But could you talk about kind of the democratization, the, the societal benefits of smaller AI models um, outside of just the sort of um, what consumerist <laughs> approach to things? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think um, you know, you saw this a lot in like the the recent discussion about the um the Joe Biden um, you know, executive order on on AI, right? Where mm-hmm. um people are saying, well, there it, it may have it may sort of like have a cooling off effect on on research and what they're really talking about is like this kind of move toward trusting these huge companies with massive um massive ai models um away from sort of the the you know the research that's happening and you're seeing the fruits of that on on these repositories like hugging face um you know in order for this to be um fully explored and all the all the capabilities and all the promise of of ai to be fully explored i think you're going to need these small models where people have the ability to kind of tinker at home if you look at just like the, the history of the internet and computers, I mean, it's it's been the the people in their garage, right, who have come up with these interesting innovations. And so I think you kind of need to see this happen um, and, until we have, you know, abundant, you know, clean energy and, you know, as many GPUs as we want, which, which may be a ways away. Um, you're going to need these sort of more efficient and, and open source models. I should mention this mm-hmm. Phi 1.5 and, and lots of others like it are, are also open source. Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned in the piece is kind of how they can be used in conjunction with larger models and uh, how they can maybe be tasked together. Um, what, what, tell us a little bit more about that in particular. Yeah, I mean, I think, and, and we should also just say that these large models are, are not going away. I mean, they're, the big ones are always going to be sort of the cutting edge and on, on the frontier. And there's no... You know, GPT four is much more capable than any of these small models, just because it has a much bigger breadth of knowledge. Um, but I think what researchers are realizing—I mean, this is this is already happening on a practical level, even with GPT four. Um, these large, these big companies are routing queries um, so that they answer them with the most efficient models. So really like GPT-4, if, if you really think about it, is actually many models within a model. And they're not running all of those parameters all the time. They're still huge and they're still running a lot. Um, but I think people are figuring out how to say, okay, you know, in a single query, part of that can be answered maybe by really small and targeted, very specialized, tailored models. And then other parts can just be you know, can can go to the the big expensive ones, and you can cut down on costs that way. So I, I think that is is really the future. And researchers are even talking about like 
where you might have just many, many small models running all the time um, within these, you know, these corporate structures. Um, and then, so something that uh, I, you, may, you may not have the answer to this, but something that I was kind of thinking about as I was going through this is, of course, we saw Microsoft make a huge investment in OpenAI behind uh, GPT-4 and ChatGPT and tie in that, that large language model in many of its products now. And that continues to roll out. We're seeing um, Windows get the uh, co-pilot system and... Uh, even in GitHub with the co-pilot, it's everywhere, right? Um, what I was curious about is if the research that's being done by Microsoft researchers, if this uh, small large language model is separate from the research and the work that OpenAI is doing, or if they took what's being done with OpenAI at OpenAI, I mean, and, you know, sort of uh, pulled from that to make Phi. Does that make sense? I know it's kind of a, a messy question, but ultimately I'm curious if yeah. this was born on a, of its own um, or if it was Microsoft researchers now that they are working with OpenAI being able to kind of go further with it. Yeah, I mean, it is... Um yeah, I, I see what you're getting at. I mean, yes, and this is Microsoft Research, which is a separate department within Microsoft mm-hmm. that does its own independent research, oftentimes that you know has little to do with the with the company, with the actual business that Microsoft's running. Um, but obviously, you know, th- this AI is is priority number one at Microsoft. So, they're the whole company is looking at the results of this stuff and 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 paying attention. Um, I think actually Microsoft and OpenAI are working, you know, pretty closely together um, on on this stuff. And I think there's actually kind of a symbiotic relationship where these models get bigger, and then researchers figure out. And this has been going on for a long time, by the way, in in the field of of AI. The researchers kind of look at these models and then figure out, okay, well, how how are these models working? How do they how do they learn? And then sort of, you know transfer that knowledge back into the small models. And then the stuff they learn during that process actually becomes helpful in, you know, the next iteration of the, of the large models. So it's kind of this knowledge going back and forth. Um, in fact, in 5.1.5, the researchers used synthetic data created by GPT-4 to train the small models. Um, and, and we're actually going to have a story out tomorrow that goes into more detail on that because it was a little bit, you know, <laughs> there was so much there that I decided to kind of break this apart. So, um, so we'll get into to more of the details there. Um, but I, I think that, yeah, I mean, this, there's a tendency to look at this and go, well, wait a minute, like Microsoft's, you know, supposed to be, you know, in partnership with OpenAI, really they own a huge part of the company. Right. Um, and they're here they're developing stuff that looks like it might be sort of an end around that technology. I don't think that's the right way to look at this. Okay. I think, you know, we're sort of moving in this in this general direction of creation. I, I think that like you know, OpenAI's models are, are are the cutting edge, right? They're the industry standard. They have a huge, huge market share of you know, people using this technology. And I don't think that's going to just end anytime soon. I mean, they're working on making their own models really efficient. So um, this is really kind of more about like what the industry will look like in the future and less about like 
who's going to win out um, in the short term, if that, that if that sense. makes sense. Yeah, that was that was a great answer to that question. Um, the last question I have for you, the article mentions the potential dangers of small AI models um, highlighted by AI critic Max uh, Tegmark. I, I will say that I felt it was a little bit extreme as a comparison, but I was hoping you could kind of expand on those concerns and talk about maybe maybe help me make sense of what seemed like an outsized reaction. <laughs> yeah, no, I I understand that. I mean, that came really from another conversation I had with with Max Tegmark a while ago, um, maybe a month ago. Um, it was the, I think it was the six month anniversary of this letter that he wrote. Um, about pausing, you know, asking for a pause, right, in, in AI development. And I said to him, I asked him a question about it. It's like, well, you know, so much AI research now is like going into making these models smaller. And I said, is that like, is that kind of comforting to you? Because, you know, they're not, do, they're not, so much of the concern, I think, is that these things are going to get bigger and scale and eventually become you know, AGI and that will threaten humanity. And he said, oh no, on the contrary, that scares me even more because that's like saying, you know, if you put a nuclear bomb in a suitcase, are you less scared? Um, I think that he's talking about something that's, that's far off into the future. And I don't have, you know, the ability to know, I don't think anybody really does, um, you know, whether that's a real concern or not. Um, but that is the kind of thing people are thinking of. So like if these small models get so capable or if they if they're able to mimic whatever is in the large models, then, you know, eventually when you get to a, you know, an AGI capable large model, then it stands to reason researchers will figure out how to put that into a very small package. And then it kind of like proliferates around the world and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. I think you can't just pull the plug on. Uh, so the if data it's center. large, then yeah, then the one thing that everybody's accessing, you could pull the plug on that. But if everybody's got one, okay, mm-hmm. that makes sense. I get that now that that makes a lot more sense. But again, I think we're talking about something that's it's, it's so theoretical at this point. Um, I don't want to dismiss these these concerns, mm-hmm. but I mean, we don't know. There's there are arguments, you know, against that ever happening, and I think you know it's. I, I don't want to be alarmist, but I I think it's something we try to do in semaphores, like give different perspectives, and so right. you know, I thought that was an interesting. It's at least a thought provoking take on on this, you know, otherwise more, you know, story about the practical realities of of how to run, how to scale AI today. Yes, it absolutely provoked thoughts from me. So uh, it was it was a good thing to include. Um, I want to thank you so much uh, for taking the time today to kind of uh, walk us through everything that Microsoft is working on in terms of these um, these small AI models. Everybody, of course, should head over to Semaphore uh, to check out your exclusive interview to get more information about it. Uh, but if folks want to follow you online to keep up with what you're doing, is there a place they can go to do that? Yeah, I mean, I'm on X. Dot com, um, which is a social media site. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, at Reed Albergati and um, Threads. Uh, you know, I'm trying to get into that. Uh, so follow, follow me. Follow me in those those places on the web as well, please. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank it was fun. You, 
All right, coming up, a report that shows where young adults are going for their news. And surprise, at least according to the report, it's not the legacy media that we are used to. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. It's very interesting stuff. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by our friends, IT Pro TV, now ACI Learning. Our listeners, I mean, if you've been with us for a long time, you know the name IT Pro TV. Uh, one of our trusted sponsors for the last decade. As part of ACI Learning, IT Pro TV, now IT Pro has elevated their highly entertaining, bingeable, short format content with over 7,200 hours to choose from. New episodes added daily, so you always get that new, that fresh, fresh content to learn from. ACI Learning's personal account managers will be with you every step of the way, so you can fortify your expertise with access to self-paced IT training videos. You've got interactive practice labs, so it's not just watching videos, it's getting involved, right, with those labs and certification practice tests, which will challenge your knowledge. One user shares excellent resource, not just for theory, but labs incorporated within the subscription. It's fantastic. Highly recommend the resource and top class instructors. That's their quote. Don't miss ACI Learning's practice labs where you can test and experiment before deploying new apps or updates, all without compromising your live system. Uh, MSPs, you're going to love that. And you can retake practice IT certification tests so you're confident when you actually sit down for the real exam. ACI Learning brings you IT practice exam questions from Microsoft, CompTIA, uh, EC Council, PMI, and many more. You can access every vendor and skill that you actually need to advance your IT career in one place. ACI Learning is the only official video training for CompTIA, in fact. Or check out their Microsoft IT training. They've got Cisco training, Linux training, Apple training, security, cloud, and the list goes on. Learn IT, pass your certs, get your dream job. That seems like a pretty awesome roadmap right there. Or if you're ready to bring your group along, head over to our special link and fill out the form for your team. Twit listeners actually receive at least 20% off an IT Pro Enterprise solution and can reach all the way up to 65% for volume discounts, depending on the number of seats that you need. So learn more about ACI Learning's premium training options across audit, IT, and cybersecurity readiness. Just visit go.acilearning.com slash twit. And for individuals, you can use code twit30. You'll get 30% off a standard or premium individual IT pro membership. That's go.acilearning.com slash twit. We thank them for their support, their longtime support of what we do here at twit. Thank you, uh, ACI Learning. All right. One of my favorite journalists online she just Taylor Lorenz is just awesome. I love the way she I love the topics that she finds and decides to drill into because yeah, yeah. often they kind of take me by surprise or I'm like, oh, this is just a world that I'm not super exposed to. And it's nice to kind of go down that that road uh, with her and her writing. She did that here. Uh, wrote a piece for the Washington Post about shifting attitudes around news authority with younger people today, specifically kind of like the younger adults. She writes that the economics of journalism have shifted very heavily in uh, the, you know the last handful of years, especially. Big surprise, <laughs> many younger, uh, do we still call them netizens? 
Is netizen still a word? <laughs> Have you I, never heard no. netizen? Citizens uh, on the net. Netizen. It's such like an old that. word. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> this, this shows you which generation I am involved oh, man. in. Uh, they're getting their news not from traditional journalism outlets, but from places like TikTok, YouTube, and Instagram. And there's actually a report earlier this year by Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism that demonstrated this. It's called the Digital News Report 2023. I think it came out in like June, sometime this summer. 94,000 adults, 46 national markets were um, were part of this report, including uh, the USA. Uh, one in five adults under 24 use TikTok as a source for news. And that's actually up 5% from 2022. So that's a that's a number that, that continues to rise, getting your news from a source like TikTok. The report says um, that it's really driven by a desire for, and this is a quote from, uh, from the report, more accessible, informal, and entertaining news formats often delivered by influencers rather than journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, also, they, uh, you know, those who would agree with this sentiment uh, note that the news feels more relevant to them. So they, they feel kind of like a deeper connection to the relevancy around this. And really, like as I read through Taylor's piece, it, it's not like I haven't heard this before. I've heard that, yeah. you know, there are people that, that really kind of consider places like TikTok and YouTube to be the places where they get their news. And I've I've certainly experienced times maybe less so now, but times where I'd say a large part of my awareness around news came from Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, yep. like I'm still going to the to read the the actual reporting on, yes. on some of these legacy but news sites. But the headlines you're finding. But, through, but yeah. how I'm learning about them, yeah. you know, is directly you know, related to Twitter or has been largely. Um, but in this case, it's a little different, right? Yes. Th- these, um, these people are, are going to places like Twitter because they, they connect – on a certain level with the person delivering the news mm-hmm. um, really kind of has something to do with the kind of the niche quality of what platforms like this allow for. They actually have an example of a, of a, you know, a, a gentleman who graduated in the field of journalism, mm-hmm. um, you know, studied journalism, but still went to TikTok because he realized um, that there was a certain demographic that he wasn't finding news for that demographic that he could provide. Oh, and so then cool. that demographic finds him and, you know, they see in him kind of their own need and they, you know, they can kind of connect with that. Right. Yeah. Um, so now it's possible for creators to really kind of niche or niche, whatever you want to call that, niche down and still find exactly the audience that matches their own niche. And often um, in ways that traditional mainstream media and journalism isn't very good at or, or doesn't represent largely. Um, yeah. I, yeah. You think about so I'm a classically trained journalist mm-hmm. um, and the whole point of of that style of journalism is to be neutral in presentation in in all aspects so that it is available to everyone mm-hmm. but in being available to everyone you do end up maybe icing out some folks who feel like they're not being talked to. Yeah. Uh, and so I understand that. It's like broadest strokes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. If, if you're going with the lowest common denominator, then you're not reaching maybe. And so if you can, I, I liked that this, the individual you mentioned, you know, 
also a classically trained journalist mm-hmm. who went into this more so I like the idea of just a random person who goes and reads a couple of things and then you know they somehow amass a following and they're sharing because then you don't have I think the the ethics in place you don't have the uh skills the necessary skills in place um which i know sounds kind of gatekeepy but at the same time that worries me because i have seen you mm. know family members and friends who will oh did you hear about this and i'm like mm-hmm. yeah i heard about that and here's why it's not true and here are seven different ways that i yeah. can show you that it's not true but you heard it from this person or this thing and you just you know ran with it and thought that it was true so I can understand why there would be some some concerns about this. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think what was really interesting to me as I read through this cuz I realized like at least for myself like I can I can totally understand why this happens and I could see it for myself too even though I am of an older generation I do have, you know, a, a respect and um I don't know what the word is, but I do respect the role of ethics and journalism. And, you know, I, I do trust that, you know, largely mainstream journalism, you know, that they're hopefully their goal is to do things without a lot of extra, you know, external influence. And and, you know, I, I realize a lot of people don't mm-hmm. trust mainstream media. Right. You know, and there have yes. been a, lot, a number of things that have happened in the last handful of years to give them that distrust, right. let alone prior to that. And then you got, you know, those born after the year 2000. They have a much different experience, right? Their their life experience involves the internet, involves you know going to these places and and following people. Like like when I think about my experience growing up and looking at celebrity, what is celebrity, and always thinking like that's someone way out there that uh, that everybody adores and everybody loves because they're really good and they're unattainable. They're unapproachable. Yes. I could never get close to that if I wanted to. Mm. And nowadays that's different, right? Nowadays it's pockets uh, of celebrity. It, right? it's, it's pockets of celebrity and they're totally accessible. Right. It's kind of built into the foundation of what it means now to be on these platforms. You want to pull people in and how you do you do that? You create a community that the you know, like minded people together, you foster that. And so I can understand why those born after the year two thousand might feel less of an attachment or association with faceless journalistic outlets that have been around for a hundred years. Right. Versus this person that I like totally like I watch them and I feel like they get me and I've got a parasocial relationship with them. Totally, totally. So I totally get it. We're seeing the impact here with legacy news organizations, you know, falling apart. Vice, you know, and these are actually, you know, Vice, BuzzFeed, Gawker. These are like those are not old. Yeah, these are new school legacy. Yeah, (laughs) not old school legacy. Yeah. And yet they're crumbling. Um, But like you said, I think the flip side here is. You know, that it is easier in this regard, you know, call it gate, gatekeeping, call it whatever. But those ethical things, those boundaries are there for a reason. They're mm-hmm. there to protect. And, I, you know, this does come at the cost of a higher likelihood of things like misinformation, disinformation, that echo chamber quality um, that, that, you know, trap that people can fall into. Um, I'm sure Jeff Jarvis would have a ton to say about this, yeah. but I thought it was a really compelling piece um, to get a to get a perspective because it's easy to read it 
and think like, oh, the kids these days, they're getting their news from TikTok. That's just that's downright ridiculous. Yeah, right. How stupid. Yeah. No. That, and, and I don't think that's I don't I, I mean, I think that that can be true. Right. There can be people that you probably don't want to get your news from. And I think that times are just changing. Yes. And people and the, you know, kids or people born after 2000 have a different understanding of what they trust and i think that's evolving and it's changing and so and ultimately there's nothing we can do to change what they're like no so it's it just uh yeah i think it's better to try to understand it and provide the necessary skills and knowledge to be mindful about the sources yeah but to sort of rail against the machine or whatever is not it's not going to make a difference anyway because that's where they will continue to so it's more important that maybe we uplift those creators who are doing it right yeah by the in the classical sense with the the ethics involved than to say no it's so stupid that you're getting your news there i mean there's just so much independent journalism depending on how you define journalism, right, right? right? So much independent stuff happening right now. We're seeing more and more of it. You know, these, even the, the, these big journalists that have been at a, a big place like the Washington post or the New York times or whatever. And they decide, no, you know what? I'm going to go over here. Thing. I'm going to create my pocket. And the people that care about me are going to follow me to my pocket yeah. and they already trust me or they're, they will, you know, they learned over time that they could trust me and we're going to be over here. In our, you know, little in, area, in, in our, our cozy our, pocket, in our cozy pocket. So, anyways, interesting read, well worth reading, and uh, big, uh, yeah, big props to Taylor Lorenz, who always makes me think. All righty, up next, we're heading back into AI. This time with a troubling story uh, in New Jersey. Before we do, though, I do want to take a moment to tell you about our next sponsor, which is Bitwarden. We're bringing you this episode of Tech News Weekly. Bitwarden is the only open source cross-platform password manager that you can trust. Security Now, Steve Gibson has even switched over. And with Bitwarden, all of the data in your vault is end-to-end encrypted, not just the passwords. Bitwarden protects you by creating unique usernames and adding strong randomly generated passwords for each account plus you can use any of their six integrated email alias services you can log into bitwarden and decrypt your vault after using sso on a registered trusted device no master password in that case is needed this new solution makes it even easier for enterprise users to stay safe and secure with bitwarden you can transparently view all of bitwarden's code it's available on github on top of being public to the world bitwarden also has professional third party audits performed yearly and the results get published on their website you can share private data securely with co-workers across departments or the entire company with fully customizable and adaptive plans there's bitwarden's teams organization uh, which is three dollars per month per user and their enterprise organization plan is just five dollars per month per user individuals get bitwarden's basic free account with unlimited passwords and now includes hardware security keys or pass keys as a form of two-factor authentication you can get a premium account for less than a dollar a month or bring the whole family with their family organization option to give up to six users premium features for just three dollars and 33 cents a month bitwarden's 2024 developer survey polled more than 600 developers to understand how they perceive and implement security best practices this poll revealed 60 percent of developers manage 100 plus secrets 65 percent practice hard coding secrets in source code and 55% keep secrets in clear text 
prevail. 30% of sensitive data in generative AI platforms potentially risks involving developer secrets. 24% risk privileged credentials. 28% risk customer information and more. 91% of developers undergo security training annually, yet more than a fifth engage in risky behavior, such as using public computers to access work data and networks. So yeah, that developer survey showed that um, maybe developers aren't being as safe as they should be. Bitwarden can help you out with that. At Twit, we are fans of password managers. You can get started with Bitwarden's free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan, or get started for free across all devices as an individual user at Bit bitwarden.com slash twit that's bitwarden.com slash twit thank you bitwarden for sponsoring this week's episode of tech news weekly so um at a school in new jersey um it's called westfield high school uh a number of uh girls who went to the school um sort of started their day and they saw a lot of the boys at the school whispering amongst one another. I believe these were sophomore students whispering amongst one another and for several days continuing to do so. Finally, three or four days later, uh, one of the girls was able to get the story out of one of the boys uh, who said that photos of them, of the girls, had been shared in group chats among the boys. These photos used the real faces of the female students, of the girl students, and used AI to generate nude bodies for these real students. Um, This is not the first time that this has happened, uh, but it is kind of quickly growing into because of the proliferation of AI and the... uh, apparent access to tools out there to do this, it is quickly growing into something that states are having to look at because of the sort of legal implications involved. So one thing that's important to understand is, you know, tools like Adobe's Firefly or uh, Doll-E from OpenAI, they have a lot of protections in place that keep you from being able to do any of this stuff. And sometimes uh, even more so than you might imagine, I was using uh, Adobe Firefly and I was trying to generate an artwork for a... Um, for a little project that I was working on and even mentioning like I wanted the, it was some sort of fantasy character to have a sword, depending on how you worded it, it would not let you because it could like tend towards violence. Mm. And so it's very, they, there are lots of protections in place to make sure that these tools are not generating stuff that would be harmful to the company, but also could, you know, harm someone in the end. Unfortunately, a lot of the, um, the, the tools that are being used right now, um, many of them are open source. We just talked to Reid Albergati about these right. smaller large language models that are multimodal, so would work with images that are open source. So someone could take that open source tool and tie it into something that they're using. There are loads of these sort of uh, face swap tools and also clothes removing tools that exist on the internet. And you can access them from something as, you know, as low powered as a smartphone. Um, What I found shocking, and I, of course, can't speak to the, you know, the accuracy of this, um, but this is according to an image detection firm called Sensity AI. 
Sensity AI says that more than 90% of the false imagery that is out there, you know, these deep fakes are porn, are pornographic. Mm-hmm. So the the Wall Street Journal in this report is talking about how, you know, we are seeing the just the other day, um, Anthony generated AI uh, Santa Leo, and mm-hmm. it looked incredible, right? And um, I've used it to... Uh, make my chihuahua look like it has a human body and is like, uh, you know, an old school French king or something. We see that, but that is such a small percentage of how these tools are being used. According to uh, Sensity AI, and there was another firm that they quoted, that the larger uh, use of this is pornographic in nature. And it's something that a lot of groups are working on trying to find a solution to. It's also part of what the Biden administration is working on with that uh, executive order. In fact, part of the order talks about um, child sexual abuse material being, you know, of uh, one of the things that AI needs to not allow to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, what's what, what's more with this is that it on its face would in theory be a serious crime because it is a uh, child. Th- these are children who are being depicted um, nude, but because the parts, the nude parts of the photos are AI generated, it does leave this gray area mm-hmm. in, in law, you know, for us, for, for a human being, we can say, yes, absolutely. That is wrong. And here are all the reasons why, but when it comes to actual legal, you know, we ha- it has to follow has, the law. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. And so there are lots of states and and even the federal government that is trying to kind of figure out how this is going to look, what what this is, what this means, what it is. Um, according to the Wall Street Journal, Virginia, California, Minnesota, and New York have outlawed the distribution of faked porn or given victims the right to sue its creators in civil court. So in both cases, or in either case, there is some sort of retribution. But in other states, that may not be the case. Uh, in New Jersey, uh, there's a state senator who is looking into, do we have a law that's in the works right now? Um, is there a law that already exists that has little uh, bits that could be used for something like this? Or am I going to have to draft a bill to make this uh, a law that will protect it? And it has resulted in, um, you know, the, the students themselves kind of talked about this and they said, you know, what really is upsetting about this is that they didn't realize that they were going to school with someone who would do something that violates them so, you know, Mm -hmm. so much Mm -hmm. that they couldn't feel comfortable at school just existing. And that, you know, I can remember um, being in high school And I can remember hearing of a couple of instances where some horrible person took what was a true real photo of someone that was sent to them and then spread it around. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, that, that was handled, you know, immediately it was taken care of. It was, it was handled. Um, But I can't imagine for these students who didn't even take a photo like that in the first place to then, you know, I guess what I'm saying is like, 
you would maybe have some level of of um, preparedness in the instance that something like that was out there. But because you to, knew it existed, yeah, because you the knew it existed place. in the first place. But to just because you uh, have a profile photo on your Instagram account or you post your Instagram account, someone taking your photograph and putting it on this body. That's I just can't imagine. And so uh, a lot of them have or several of them have, uh, according to one of the students, completely deleted their social media accounts. Um, others have you know, done group counseling um, yeah. and they're kind of working through that as as this goes on. Um, what uh, the Wall Street Journal also says is that there have there has been some precedent in other places Um in April, a 22-year-old Long Island man was sentenced to six months in jail for creating and posting faked images depicting women from his old school, along with personally identifying information. The original photos were taken when the women were in middle school and in high school. And so it's unclear, you know, maybe the photos were, that was the photos used to kind of create the new photos mm-hmm. and they were um, generated as as adults. But because the photos were taken at a time when they were not, and in the case of these these you know uh, individuals being depicted, then uh, the the individual ended up going to jail for or sentenced to jail for six months. So ultimately, I think what this story is about is that AI is moving very quickly, and unfortunately, people are using it in ways that they absolutely should not be. And we need we, we we've the law needs to catch up. Frankly, yeah, you know. I find myself having an emotional reaction to this story just because I do have, I can only imagine, you know, kids, um, similar in age to this. And I can't even imagine, uh, having, you know, ha- being presented with this and, you know, kids that age, they're, they, ugh, man, junior high and high school is just so filled with, sh- with <laughs> moments of, of shame yep. and, uh, not good enough. And, uh, judgment mm-hmm. and all these things. It's it's so hard to then be presented with something like this that even an adult could would have an incredibly difficult time maneuvering through something like this. Absolutely. And, you know, you said therapy. It's like, yeah, at the very beginning, you mm-hmm. you <laughs> something like this happens. Like, I don't I don't know that you there, there's any way to not. Um One of the victims in here said at first I cried and then I decided I should not be sad. I should be mad. And should advocate for myself and the other victims, which I don't know. I read that. I'm like, yes, but man, it's got, it's got to be really hard to like be able to compartmentalize that because that's true, right? Like that isn't you. Mm -hmm. Like the the reality is that isn't you in that image. That is your face and everything else is fake. So it's not actually you, but how do you remove, you know, your emotional like shock and attachment to Knowing that this thing exists, knowing that there are people at the school that you share space with that Ugh, that's the thing that didn't you know that don't consider kind of the 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 kind of the moral boundaries that are crossed in doing yeah. something like this you, I would think you would not feel safe anymore oh i I imagine so this is the kind of thing you know that that has kids changing schools you know or worse I hate to say um i and and then yet. I'm also presented with something that Leo, you know, had said just this week, which is kind of his epiphany around AI. He said it yesterday on This Week in Google, which is that the 
the enemy is not the technology mm-hmm. because we've always had the technology to do these things. We've always had Photoshop. Yes. It's always been, po- well, we haven't always had Photoshop, right, but right. we've had it for a very years long time. And, years and, years we've had Photoshop. and someone who knew what they were doing with Photoshop could very easily do exactly this. Absolutely. It's, it's the people and it's the people behind it. And mm-hmm. how do we educate the people to know that you, that this is, this is territory that you don't try. Right. That this is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I totally I have a, I have an emotional reaction to this story. It's I don't want I, I I feel so bad for anyone who encounters this and especially children. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. That is just awful. Um yeah, so there you go. This a uh, Wall Street Journal story definitely worth reading to get a sense of kind of the directions that this technology can be taken. I mean, there's a there's a million different direction bad directions that AI mm-hmm. can be taken as with any technology. You know, at the end of the day, it's the intentions of the people behind it. What What is their intention? That That is the real big uh, problem. Yeah, that's uh, from Julie Jargon over on the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, thank you for bringing that. Uh, we have reached the end of this episode of Tech News Weekly. If you want to support us, you can do so by subscribing to this show. That is the, I'd say, one of the most, if not the most important thing you can do to uh, support and let you know the folks here at Twit know, hey, I like Tech News Weekly and I want to keep receiving it. So twit.tv slash TNW, subscribe. You'll get the podcast every week and we will have smiles on our face. Thank you. <laughs> uh, another way that you can support the network uh, is by joining Club Twit at twit.tv slash Club Twit. Uh, when you join the club, starting at $7 a month or $84 a year, you will get every single Twitch show with no ads. It's just the content because you, in effect, are the sponsor of the show, right? So you'll have your own special feeds for every single show. You'll also gain access to the members-only Twit Plus bonus feed that has extra content you won't find anywhere else. Behind the scenes, before the show, after the show, special club Twit events, including the recent escape box that we did. Um, and access to the members-only Discord server, a fun place to go to chat with your fellow club Twit members and also those of us here at Twit. Uh, it's a pretty active community and we stream the the different Club Twit events live there as well. So you could have tuned in uh, to watch the uh, escape box at that time. Again, that's $7 a month, $84 a year at twit.tv slash club twit. Along with that, you'll also gain access to some club twit exclusive shows. There's the untitled Linux show, which is, as you might imagine, a show all about Linux. There's hands on... Um, Hands-On Windows, which is a short-format show from Paul Therott that covers Windows tips and tricks. There's Hands-On Mac, which is a short-format show that covers Apple tips and tricks. There is the... Home Theater Geeks program, which is Scott Wilkinson's show, where he talks all things home theater, including interviews, reviews, uh, questions answered. It's great for all of that stuff to deal with the home theater. And of course, you can also watch AI Inside, uh, which will be Mm. a little bit later today. Sounds like a good show. Yeah, it Mm. is. From Jason Howell. Again, all at twit.tv slash club twit. So we would love to have you join the club if you haven't yet. Uh, and and provide some support that way. If you want to follow me online um, on all of the places I'm never posting, I am at Micah Sargent, or you can head to chihuahua.coffee, that's C-H-I-H-U-A-H-U-A.coffee, or I've got links to the places that um, you can find the stuff that I'm doing. Uh, you can watch iOS Today on Tuesdays with Rosemary Orchard uh, and me, Micah Sargent, uh, where we cover all things 
Apple, save for the Mac, it's kind of all of their mobile platforms. You can also watch Ask the Tech Guys on Sunday, uh, where a, we take Leah Laporte and I uh, take your questions uh, live on air and do our best to answer them. And uh, Hands on Mac will come out later today for those of you who are in the club. So you can also watch that. Jason Howell, what about you? Yeah. Well, um, I'm trying out a new thing. So go to raygun.fun. See, it rhymes. It's easy-ish to remember. Raygun.fun. You'll find all the ways that you can follow me online. It's just easier just to go raygun.fun. Or say it out loud. At least say it out loud once. You'll have fun when you say it out loud. Uh, It's just enjoyable. Uh, Thanks to everybody who helped us do this show each and every week. John Ashley, John Slanina, Burke McQuinn, sometimes Anthony Neal. We've got everybody involved with this show, including you. You, without you, we wouldn't have a show. So thank you for watching. We'll see you next time on Tech News Weekly. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Come join us on This Week in Enterprise Tech Expert Coast and I talk about the enterprise world. And we're joined by industry professionals and trailblazers like CEOs, CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, every acronym role, plus IT pros and marketeers. And we talk about technology, software, plus services, security, you name it, everything under the sun. You know what? I learn something each and every week, and I bet you you will too. So definitely join us. And of course, check out the twit.tv website and click on This Week in Enterprise Tech. Subscribe today. 